men. Will you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke? If you've been marking your Bibles, we are in the same passage that we were in last week, and so it shouldn't be too hard to find, I hope. <clears throat> we are back in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It's, last week was Murphy's Law Sunday at Providence Presbyterian Church. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. This week is Groundhog's Day. We preach the same text in a different way. And so I hope you can bear with me as I took perhaps a personal privilege in order to readdress this text. I desired, uh, as I was studying it two weeks ago, in order for one sermon, I realized there was so much wealth of knowledge that I couldn't handle this one text in one mere sermon. It's kind of odd. I've been perhaps barreling through Luke you may have thought, maybe too quickly. And now we are doing the opposite today by not moving forward at all, by remaining in the first 13 verses today. And so as we'll look today, last week we saw the work of the Spirit of Christ by leading him into the wilderness. Today we are honing in at least a little more on the temptation of Christ. What does it mean that Satan tempted him? Who was Satan? What does temptation look like in a sinless being? What does temptation look like in our lives? Well, it's a little different. And so I wanted to spend a little more time today looking at the idea of temptation itself. Because I think we sometimes misunderstand what temptation is and what perhaps Christ went through in the wilderness. Therefore, stand. Stand before our God as we hear the first 13 verses of Luke 4. Here is the Holy Word of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing for those forty days. <clears throat> and when they, they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. Here ends our gospel lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love Lord of the Rings much as the next guy. My preaching professor said, never use Lord of the Rings sermon illustrations because they're overdone. And so perhaps from time to time, that will happen of me as well. But I love Lord of the Rings. And one of my favorite scenes, at least in both the books and movies, is in the Twin, or the Two, the twin Towers, the Two Towers. 
The two towers, you know the scene, you've watched it perhaps over and over again, is the Battle of Helm's Deep. It is an iconic battle, a battle between good and evil, perhaps personified most in that moment in any of the books was that magnificent, triumphant battle. It is a battle where there is a mighty fortress lodged in a rock where the orcs outside seek to make their way in and to kill all the forces of good so that Sauron and his armies would perhaps triumph and take over all of Middle-earth. It is a magnificent battle. King Theoden at that time stands as the orcs make their way and to siege the, the great castle. He says, and so it begins. It's an iconic statement. And so it begins. What begins the great battle between good and evil? In many ways, the passage before us today with Jesus and the tempter is a and so it begins moment, a battle between good and evil. It begins here with Jesus in his weakest moment as he seeks to redeem his people to God himself as he fights Satan himself. It is a great picture. Jesus goes to battle and it is a battle between good and evil. Even as we learned last week that the Lord will skewer Satan with the book of Deuteronomy, we see that as God preserves the Lord himself, he does so in our stead. Without exception, I think all of us have experienced the issue of sin. We all have experienced it. Many days, in fact, we probably feel defeated in this battle between good and evil where our sin overwhelms us and we fall to the sins, those besetting sins that we know all so well. But what I want you to see here today is that when Christ defeats Satan, he defeats sin. When Christ defeats Satan, he defeats sin. And for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ today, when Christ defeats Satan, he defeats sin for you. You are not conquered by your sin. Rather, you have a mighty warrior in the Lord Jesus Christ that crusades upon your behalf and defeats sin for you. So do not believe today that you are in a losing battle, for Christ has defeated sin. And that's what we're looking at today. When Satan is defeated by Christ, Christ also defeated our sin. There are three ideas that I want you to know from this passage as it relates to Christ. The first is that Jesus was tempted to sin. That's what we see. The text says it plainly in verse 2. Look down with me. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he was hungry. Satan doesn't tempt Jesus when he is at his highest. He waits until those 40 days has ended when he is at his weakest. He is at the point of death, as we had heard last week. He is not doing well humanly. He's not doing well at all. And that is the context for when Satan comes to tempt him. But who is Satan? Perhaps we know little about Satan. Perhaps you think you know more than you do. He was the head of the angels in heaven before he fell. And when he fell, he took one-third of all the angelic beings with him. I don't know how many angelic beings there were, but a third seems like quite a lot. A third, one-third of all the angels fell with him. He is known as the adversary in the Bible, the devil, the serpent, the great dragon, the prince of the power of the air, the god of the age, the evil one, the prince of demons, the accuser, the tempter, the god of this world. He has many names, 
But it's quite interesting that in gospel, Luke chapter 4, is only the second time in all of Scripture that Satan meets a human face to face. The first, as you know, as we read last week, is Genesis 3, when he is before Adam. This is the second time. The second Adam now faces the great accuser, the cunning Satan. But I want you to know that Satan is not as powerful as you might think as Hollywood portrays. Satan is limited. He is not God. We might be tempted to think that Satan is equal to God. This is a yin and yang religion where Satan is the opposite of God with the same power and authority as God. But that is not true. Though Satan is cunning, he's not all-knowing. Though Satan is swift, he's not all-present. And though Satan is strong, he is not all-powerful. Sometimes we think Satan is omnipotent. We think he is present everywhere at all times, and it is just not true. He may have felt present last week with all of our kerfuffle, but it is not true. You can only be in one place and one time. Sometimes we think Satan is greater than he is, is, but he is limited. He is a creature, as you and I are a creature of God. And we see in this passage the limits of Satan. Jesus rhetorically beats the stew out of Satan in this passage, and he hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's not as powerful as we perhaps think. I would warn you against getting your theology of Satan from Hollywood. That's where I got my theology of Satan for Hollywood from Hollywood for many years. I've watched too many exorcism movies, and I assumed that Satan was analogous to those Hollywood representations. You see, an all-powerful Satan in those experiences. You see a Satan that seems to be present anywhere and everywhere, all at the same time. You see, he knows everything. It's not true. Satan is a creature, but he is a cunning creature. He is a deceptive creature. He deceived Adam and Eve when, even when they were sinless, and he seeks to deceive Christ and perhaps you and I today. But how does he tempt? We see that Satan seeks to tempt Christ by focusing his eyes away from what we have learned about Christ thus far. In the first three chapters of Luke, we see that Christ is the divine Son of God. That as he goes to the temple, he says, this is my Father's house. I am a son of the living God. And we see in his baptism where the Father himself condescends through the Spirit and says, this is my Son. What Satan seeks to do is to have Jesus question that sonship. The same thing that Satan did in the garden, before. He wanted Adam to question his sonship, and he did. And now he wants Jesus to do the same. And so each of the three temptations, as we'll look at here briefly, are there to question that sonship, to do what Adam did in the garden. And so let's look at those three temptations. How was Jesus tempted? Well, first we see in verse 3 that he was tempted by a shortcut to satisfaction. Look down. If you are the Son of God, Satan says, command this stone to become bread. Satisfaction. He is certainly lacking in the department of food. Completely hungry. After a mere couple hours, I get hungry and get ravenous, the boys especially, and they just want to eat. Imagine 40 days without food. There's nothing wrong with Jesus eating. There's no sin found in eating food, especially when you are 40 days peckish. 
40 days hungry. What the issue is here is that Satan wants Jesus to fulfill his own needs. There's nothing wrong, perhaps, to say that Adam and Eve ate some fruit. It wasn't the fruit that was the issue. It was the divine command and submitting to the will of God. That's the issue. So don't view, perhaps, eating bread from stones as an issue. The issue is that Satan wanted Jesus to disobey the will of the Father. The will of the Father through the Spirit was to send Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And this is Satan's temptation. Will you forsake your sonship? How does Jesus respond to the devil's call to forsake his sonship by turning bread from stone into bread? Jesus says, as he reminds us in Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus' work in the scripture as a child is starting to pay off here as the Spirit works with him and to recall these passages. What we see is that Jesus has a response. When Satan comes on the attack, Jesus' defense is the scripture itself. And the defense here is the reminder that the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide for his people. The overarching context that Jesus is quoting this passage is on the backdrop of the people of Israel grumbling because God has not provided adequately for them. And how God has adequately provided for them was through manna and quail, as you remember in Exodus. That's the backdrop where there's a grumbly people. Oh Lord, you have not been sufficient in taking care of me. That is what Jesus is reminding the devil of and the people of God here today, is that no, God is sufficient. He cares for his creature. And I must remind you that we do not live on bread alone. The Lord is sufficient in caring for his creature, and therefore I will not overcome, be overcome by the grumblings of my own flesh for some food. First is a shortcut to being satisfied. The second temptation is a shortcut to power. What does the devil do? The devil takes him up and shows him the kingdoms of the world at that time and says, to you I will give all authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will. If you then worship me, it will all be yours. The second temptation is a shortcut to power. Satan offers Jesus power. Here, Satan is actually twisting Scripture. It is correct that at, up until this point, Satan has been given over to all of the land. But we must know also that Satan is twisting the authority that has been given to him at this point. God never says, you have the authority, Satan, to give the land or your power to anyone. Yes, you've been given this land, but you have no choice in whom is in authority under you. It's God's choice. But Satan is twisting Scripture again, trying to get Jesus to forsake his sonship and become a son of Satan himself. Just worship me, and all will be yours. You see, Jesus was actually promised this power. He was promised this power. But this power would come by the way of suffering and service, not by the way of exploitation and domination. See, Satan is saying, you, you worship me and you can have everything you want. You can exploit what you want. You can dominate what you want. But that is not the plan of the Father. Yes, Jesus has all power. He'll be exalted to the throne of God, worshiped for all time as a true and living God. But it must come according to the will of God, through suffering, through service. 
I imagine as Satan draws him up to the kingdoms of the earth to show them all, it's probably like the space needle in Seattle drawn up. You might see all of the land before you. In Tuscumbia, we had a mini space needle. It was quite interesting. And it was called the 360 Grill. It was probably one of the nicest establishments you can eat because you'd have to take an elevator up and you'd sit at a table that would be right next to the window and it would imperceptibly rotate. You wouldn't know that you're rotating until you look up 30 minutes later out the window and nothing, it's kind of jarring, nothing is the same. And you can see everything over the shoals. You can see the university, you can see your home, you can see the schools, you can see everything. That's what Jesus sees. He sees everything. And Satan says, this is all could be yours now if you just worship me. It's already the Lord Christ's. But in his exalted state, he would have to wait and he would have to suffer. This is the sort of temptation. It's quite ironic, though, that Satan is actually quoting Scripture here. He's quoting the 91st Psalm when he says, To you I will give all authority and glory. It's ironic that Satan doesn't finish that verse because this is how that verse finishes. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample under your foot. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy for Satan. If he would just finish the verse, he would know what would come of him, but he doesn't. He's a cunning devil. So what does Jesus say? He says, you shall worship the Lord God and him only shall you serve. The result of idolatry is disastrous, and the Lord Jesus Christ knows that. The people in the wilderness succumb to that idolatry quite regularly and often, and so Jesus reminds the Satan, but also his people, that in the midst of an idolatrous world, you must remember that you shall worship the Lord God, and only him shall you serve. You are tempted probably in this way more than, than any. Your bellies are likely full even this morning. This is the way that we are often tempted. We're reminded by Jesus himself here. We cannot substitute God for any other. The last temptation we see, this is the bulkiest point, is there's no shortcut to glory. That's what Satan tempts him with. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from him from here. And for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and he will guard you. The last is that Satan himself tempt, wants Jesus to tempt or put God to the test. Well, if you threw yourself down and you, say, you are who you say you are, you cannot die here because this is not how the Lord wills you to die. Satan has decent logic here that the Lord himself will preserve, the, the God over the Lord will preserve the Lord through his awaited time. And so the sin here that Satan tempts Jesus with is the sin to put God to the test. Will you test God? And Jesus adequately responds again in Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. These are all temptations. Jesus experiences the depth of temptation here externally as Satan brings forth great opportunities for shortcuts in his messianic journey. And there are many temptations in our own lives that provide shortcuts. I am sure we are all tempted towards all sorts of shortcuts in life. 
We've heard all those scams on the internet through your phones, through emails of great sums of money that you can receive. If you just give me your, all your personal information, I will wire you millions of dollars because I'm an African prince and you are my inheritor. There are always shortcuts, it seems, to life, and it is so tempting and alluring to succumb to those shortcuts. But we're reminded here is we are to be more like Jesus and perhaps Joseph in Potiphar's house. When situations of temptation come, what do we do? We flee it. We run as fast as we can in the opposite direction. For an alcoholic, it means we're emptying our cabinets. If we're an addict of any sort, it means that we destroy and flee any opportunity to be succumb to that addiction. For workaholics, it means setting reminders that force us to quit work when we are to quit work. It is to flee. When there is temptation, we are to flee. Jesus stays and endures, but we are to flee. When Jesus defeated Satan, he defeated sin. We saw that Jesus was truly tempted. But the, last, the second thing I want you to know is that Jesus did not desire to sin. Jesus did not desire to sin. This is why we have a second sermon, by the way. Because we don't always understand temptation. Jesus did not desire in his being to do any of this. What is temptation? There are many facets to human temptation. The first is external. We saw that in the first point. There were all these circumstances that Satan sought to concoct in order for Jesus to deny his sonship. But there is also this thing called internal temptation. This happens within our own hearts. External temptation is an external circumstance that is outside of us. We were driving by Alton the other day and we saw this massive casino sign that that was just blaring in our eyes in the middle of the night. That is an external temptation. It is an opportunity to ruin my family's financial estate. It's external. The lights draw you in like a moth. We are open all day. That's what that sign says. And all night. Come. It's external. Temptation becomes internal at the moment that I think, well, maybe if I just go for a moment, that's when it becomes inside. There are two types of temptation. We only see one in this text. It is external. Jesus is not tempted on the inside. But we often are. We often are. When I was a boy, I always thought as long as I didn't succumb to the temptation that was within, I did not sin. I always thought, well, if I were tempted to drink alcohol and I didn't, well, that's a victory in my life. I can take a victory lap. Though I desired it, I was unable to obtain it, and therefore I was victorious. But no, 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 no. Internal desire is sin. That's why we're taking a moment here. When we desire sin, it is sin. When we desire sin, it is sin. Not all desires are sinful. I desire to love my wife. That's not sinful. But sinful desires are sin. Me wanting to ruin my, fi- my family's financial estate by going to the boat or the casino right over there in Alton is a sin. And we must recognize that internal temptation is a sin. You might say, are you sure, Scott? Are you sure, Pastor? Are you sure, Preacher? Matthew 5 explains this perfectly. When Jesus said, You have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But what do I say to you? Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Inside. Desire on the inside is said. Jesus says here, anger is akin to murder. There we see both internal temptation and then outward rebellion. When our internal anger turns to murdering, both the anger and the murder is sin. So that's what I want you to know. If you can take anything away from today, on this Lord's Day, is that sinful desire is itself sin. And therefore, since it is sin, we must repent of it. Sometimes in our own modern culture, we think that uh, the road to authenticity, it means that we have to be true to our inward self by manifesting it in our outward self. But we do not encourage that in the church. We do not encourage those who are serial killers on the inside to play that serial killing life on the outside. We say, no, deny that. Do not be authentic to yourself. And in the same way, we say this for sin. Do not be authentic to your sinful self. Do not play out your deep sinful tendencies in your actual life. Not only don't do that, but confess it. It is great news in the gospel that we have a great opportunity because the Lord truly does change those desires. If sin was only external by way of our actions, we can become whitewashed tombs where our external works seem so perfect and pristine while our internal desires seem so gross and disgusting. The Lord does not put us on palliative care. He wants all of us. He doesn't want just our actions. He wants our heart. And he comes in by the way of the Spirit to change our heart and our heart's desires. Your desires are important. He cares about your desires and affections. Therefore, we must confess our desires. We must confess. I failed at this as a young boy, and I often grew slowly in the Lord because I thought as long as I desired it, if I didn't act on it, I was okay. If I don't act on it, I'm okay. But no, the Lord wants not part of me. He wants all of me, and he wants all of you too. That second point is what I want you to take home today. Sinful desires are sin. You must confess them to the Lord as you confess any sin. Confess them today. When Jesus defeated sin, when Jesus defeated Satan, he defeated sin. We saw that Jesus was tempted by sin. Jesus could not desi- uh, did not desire to sin. The last thing I want you to know, and this is perhaps unique in the Reformed tradition, is that Jesus could not sin. Jesus could not sin. No matter how powerful the devil might seem in this moment, Jesus could not have sinned. Shed, a, a, a famous Reformed uh, uh, systematician, said this, As the incarnate Son of God, Christ faced real temptation, but these temptations did not arise in Christ due to sinful desires. Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, but guess what? He was unable to be overcome by it at all. In other words, Jesus not only defeated Satan in the wilderness, he was unable to be overcome by Satan in the wilderness. Even in his weakened state of being hungry before the devil, Jesus could not fail. And that is good news for you. 
that you in the wilderness would have failed. Jesus could not have failed. And the $5 term you can go home with today is the impeccability of Christ. There's all these great reformed jargon that you will never remember even from this service today, but Christ is impeccable. It means that he is unable to sin. The impeccability of Christ. You are able to sin. There's this great little uh, triad or so of being able to sin and not to sin. Christ is not able to sin. You might find it odd. You say, well, Scott, how could he be truly human if he's unable to sin? Well, I have news for you. Sin is not what makes you human. Sin is not what makes you human. We might think it makes us human because we see sin, we experience sin, we know not a day apart from sin in many regards, but it doesn't make you human. When we read in Hebrews, for we have a great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, is a reminder that Christ experienced the same world that you experience, and he did not desire sin. And so when we read the Gospels, and when we learn from Christ in the Gospels, we see what life free from sin looks like. And that is the life promised to you, a life free from sin. Not today. We are all a work in progress, your pastor and elders included. You probably know our sinfulness. I don't have to give my laundry list of dirty laundry to you today. You know your pastor is not perfect, and you are not perfect. But what we have here in this temptation narrative is a taste of what is to come. For those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Satan is overcome by Christ himself, you too overcome Satan, and you too will one day be impeccable. You too one day will be unable to sin. One of my favorite verses to read often, especially with those who are ailing, is the reminder in Revelation chapter 21, where the Lord says to John that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the promise. That's the impeccable life, the sinless life that is promised to you and me. Do you have it today? No. But you will have it someday. You will have it someday, whether it is when Christ returns or when he calls you home. You will taste that impeccability, and you will love it. You will love it more than you love your sin here today. When Jesus defeated Satan, he defeated your sin. He was tempted, but he did not desire because he was unable. That is the truth of Christ in the wilderness. For those in Christ today, this is good news. For when the Lord of glory comes upon you, he gives you all of these promises that you too one day will have what Christ has here. Even when you are at your lowest, you'll be better than your best even in this life. That is the promise of the gospel today. That through death, the death of Christ, that you too see victory. That through the temptation of Christ, you too see victory. Even as we are a work in progress today, the good news for the believer here is that Christ defeats Satan. He crushes his head, and in that crushing, he defeats sin itself. And you too, today can defeat sin in him. If you are apart from Christ, though, today, 
You may look at the world around you and say, well, this place seems like a disaster. There are wars, there are famines, corruption, wickedness, natural disasters, moral imperfections, governments that seem to line their own pockets rather than to care for their people. This place seems rather unredeemed. And that is the good news that I offer you, is that you have a king that is waiting as the heavens that calls you to his throne today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but call upon him. Things may seem apathetic. They say, may seem hopeless. But know that Satan is defeated. He is defeated. Yes, perhaps he is not thrown into the lake of fire yet, but he is like a ravenous dog put on a leash. Today, do not go close to that dog any longer. Draw away and draw to the king of kings. Satan's influence is limited, but he is ravenous. Depart from him and come to Christ. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace and mercy that upon our behalf, Jesus did what we could not do. We would have failed at each of these three temptations if we've ever been given the desire, even with a full belly. We pray, O Lord, that as we cling to Christ, we cling to his sinlessness. Be with us, O Lord, as we confess faith in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In response, will you stand with me and sing hymn number 252? 252.